welcome to the Earn Your Happy Podcast. I'm Lori Harder, founder of The Bliss Project, three-time fitness world champion, fitness expert, and cover model turned self-love junkie, lifestyle entrepreneur, and author. Each week, I'll bring you a guest or a thought that will help you bust through your fears, connect to your soul, and get focused and clear so you can elevate your life, business, and relationships. We don't wait until we're ready for someone to tell us we're good enough. We take what we want and we anoint ourselves. Get ready to earn, own, and unapologetically rock your happiness every single day. Are you with me? Here we go. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the show. I'm so excited that you're here. And before we dive into today's awesome guest, and when I say awesome, I mean this person literally has given me massive tangible takeaways in life that has completely shifted the way that I think and show up and even the way that we run our company. So I cannot wait for you to hear it. I know you're going to get so many things that you're going to implement right away, whether you have a business or not. This human being is amazing. But before we do that, I cannot wait to meet you. And you know that my main, main thing that I live for is to be in a room with you and be able to chat with you and hug you and take a picture with you. And that is going to happen on the book tour coming up. So if you live in Austin, if you live in Atlanta, if you live in Chicago, and if you live in uh, Nashville. I would love, love, love to see you on the book tour. And you can go to atribecalledbliss.com to go and get your ticket. And I am going to be totally honest with you when I say that our last book tour sold out and we had a waiting list and we absolutely couldn't let people in the room due to um, capacity of the room. So I would love to see you, but I want to make sure that you get your ticket now because it is one of the most beautiful experiences in the world. It's so much fun. So what you can expect is an hour of a talk that is really going to rock your world on relationships, not only with other women, but with yourself and really learning how to set boundaries and agreements to have the relationships that you desire, setting yourself up for the life that you want and for the business that you want. So if you're a business person, this is dramatically going to help you not only in your female relationships, but also all relationships in your life. And then right after that, we do a Q&A, which is incredible what comes out of that room, really realizing that you are not alone getting all of your questions answered. And of course, then we all get to take pictures, connect, and it's really intentional connecting. I will tell you that women have left meeting their new business partners, meeting their new best friends, uh, meeting the person that they needed for the next step on what they wanted to do. So I really want to see you at the event. Even if you don't live there and you have friends that are there, it means the world when you guys share this. So tag them, let them know that I'm coming to their city and I just want to say thank you because this podcast and through all of your sharing has gotten the word out about the book, gotten the word out about the podcast, and it's only growing because of you guys. It's only growing because of you guys. So every single share means the world to me, and I just want to thank you and acknowledge you because you know that I try to get back to every single person who shares it. So thank you for that. So today's guest I'm really excited about because honestly, I first met his wife. And I was so blown away by this woman. And she ended up leading me to Tom Bilyeu, who is our special guest today. And I just, I didn't even realize that this person, because he's so genuine and so humble and so wise, was behind everything he's behind. So Tom Bilyeu is the co-founder of 2014 Inc. 500 company, Quest Nutrition, a unicorn startup valued at over 1 billion, that's billion with a B, and the co-founder and host of Impact Theory. Tom's mission is to break people out of the matrix by sharing transformative content and fostering one-on-one communication within the Impact Theory community. Tom believes that human potential is nearly limitless, but the dual pandemics of mental and physical malnutrition are hindering a realization of their potential. Through in-depth interviews with world's top achievers, including Gary Vaynerchuk, Maria Sharapova, and Mel Robbins, Tom explores mindset-shifting tactics, questions, accepted belief systems, and uncovers distinctive strategies for success. 
He regularly inspires audiences of entrepreneurs, change makers, and thought leaders at prestigious conferences and seminars around the world. And I will tell you that I have gotten to see him speak and I was blown away, including Success Live, HustleCon, Thrive, Abundance 360, Mind Valley's A Fest. And Tom has been featured on numerous top-rated podcasts, such as the Tony Robbins Podcast, The School of Greatness, Bulletproof Radio, Dave Asprey, The Drew Show, so many others. He's currently on the innovation board of the XPRIZE Foundation. And for real, get ready, take some notes. I don't know where you are, but get a pen and paper because I have been shifted since this interview and I know it's going to offer huge value. So let's get started. Tom, I'm so excited to have you on the show today. Thank you so much for coming on. I am very excited to be here. So thank you for having me. <laughs> okay. So let me tell you a couple things that happened after you have been on your amazing show, Impact Theory, which I had so much fun on. I can't even tell you how amazing of an experience that was. And I just want to talk about it for a minute because it doesn't create any pressure whatsoever to interview the person who's given you the best interview of their life and is known for amazing <laughs> interviews, which... <laughs> Well, there, was like zero, there was zero stress today thinking of this. <laughs> so, That's hilarious. You did such a good job. I, I feel an equal amount of pressure to make sure that uh, I live up to the standard you set. <laughs> so I just wanted to say how much fun that was. And truly, I can tell that it is your passion place of just sharing incredible information and making sure that people really get value in everything that you put out there. So thank you so much for that experience. And I'm, I'm so thrilled to talk to you today because a few things that I did not fully realize is that when I was going down the Tom Bilyeu vortex, which was absolutely amazing, I feel so much smarter, uh, <laughs> <laughs> was that we have so much in common with our background. I did not know that you came from a family um, who struggled with their weight. I had no clue. Oh, yes. So tell me a little bit about that. You know, what I would really love for you to just dive into to catch our audience up a little bit is a little bit about your background and also um, what got you started into start studying at our, our for film at USC. Yeah, so I grew up in Tacoma, Washington, um, and we sort of teetered between blue collar and white collar growing up, and my family was morbidly obese. And so my life growing up, um, my mom, my dad, and my sister were all very heavy, aunts, uncles, incredibly heavy. I had an uncle um, who was essentially a shut-in at one point in his life. I mean, just really, really heavy set. Wow. Um, and, and I've always, you know, sort of joked that my family were early adopters of the obesity trend because they were heavy when other people just weren't heavy. Mm. Um, and so that was the, you know, the early growing up. The cool thing about that is it is really hard to be judgmental of a group of people who you love so dearly. So for me, I've never had that judgment over other people who are heavy set because I get it. Like I get the struggle. I get that it's amazing human beings um, that just have an issue. And so that really allowed me to approach that problem in the way that it manifested at Quest from a place of like, I really want to serve and do something rad for people that are struggling with this. Um, and, and that's, you know, one of the reasons that it ended up being so successful is we, we really were coming from a place of wanting to help. And, um, that, that was just awesome. And so, you know, really deeply passionate about helping people that struggle in that way. Um, doesn't have anything to do with how I ended up in film school. Um, but that, uh, that was where I started. And then an, an interesting part in that. So when I was probably just before my teen years, my dad was told by his doctor that if he didn't lose weight, he was going to die. And there's this amazing book called Change or Die, and it chronicles people who are given a similar diagnosis and how they respond. And it's some absurd number, like 95%. I mean, that's within striking distance. Mm. It is that comically high of people who, even if all they have to do is take one pill a day to massively increase their risk of survival, they don't do it. Mm. And so compliance with things like that is ridiculously low. But when my dad was told that, he falls into that 5% of people that can make change. And so he really turned it around and 
um, lost a lot of weight and then he fluctuated a little bit for a while, but um, even now into his seventies has, has really maintained um, a, a reasonable uh, physique. He's not going to step on stage anytime soon, but you know, in terms of knowing where he started and, and what he's accomplished, it's really pretty extraordinary. But then, um, you know, other people in my family just continue to struggle and, um, you know, no matter what, it was just remained a very, very obstinate problem for them. Okay. So let, let me stop you there because this is, so I consider you to be a big thinker, a huge thinker. So I really love uh, looking at where that came from and where that started. And I like to, um, so with your family being overweight, with your family coming from where or coming from where you came from, how did that affect you in your journey in what you wanted to do? Because I can only imagine that you looked at that and thought, is this you know, is this going to happen to me? How is this going to affect me? How am I going to make sure that I don't do this? So how did you go from that mindset of where they clearly didn't really want to change how they were thinking into being in the same household, but having a completely different way of looking at it? Where do you think that came from? Well, the the reality is that um, that really blossomed when I wasn't in the same household anymore and getting around different people and moving to Los Angeles when I was 18 and um, really pursuing film in earnest and getting, you know, it's a very long story, but Mm -hmm. um, getting emotionally beaten up uh, in film school and coming out the other side, sort of um, flirting with depression and not knowing what I was going to do with my life. And building the mindset that I have today as a, it was a life raft. It was like, I could feel myself heading towards depression. And the one saving grace was I just realized that I love to read. And so I was reading and trying to learn and stumbling across books that, you know, now it's all called mindset, but like mindset wasn't a word. Like people mm-hmm. talk about it, like they talk about it now. And um, this, when I first started researching the brain, which just seemed like a good place to start if you're you know, struggling emotionally, brain plasticity was hotly debated. Some people were saying it is absolutely false. Your brain is malleable until you're 11, maybe 12. And then it's just, it's hardwired and that's that. And that's why, you know, as adults, we can't learn new languages. And I mean, there was just a real body of convincing evidence that said that your brain is not plastic um, and you just have to make, you know, good with whatever hand you were dealt. And then there was the flip side of the coin that was like, no, the brain is malleable up until the time you die. You can change physically the structures of your brain. And so I just made a choice. And I was like, one of these options scares me and makes me feel badly about myself. And the other option gives me hope and tells me that I can make change and become whoever I want to become. So that was the the beginning of me deciding I'm going to believe the things that empower me, that make me feel better, that allow me to, you know, show up better in this world. Um, And so I chose to believe that the brain was malleable. I chose to believe that brain plasticity was real. Um, And, you know, the science has now proven that it just beyond a shadow of a doubt, it really is malleable. But at the time, it was just a choice. Mm. So it it sounds like obviously gaining knowledge is huge, but so many people are listening and you were able to take the knowledge that you had and actually find the motivation to apply it. So what's the difference between you who understood that, yes, you need to find knowledge, but now you also have to figure out what motivates you. And I heard you say a few times in a few different interviews that you are you know, motivated through the pain and you're, that's a huge motivator for you. And that was a massive motivator for me. So how did you kind of channel that instead of letting it stop you and really being able to apply your knowledge in the ways that you did? So uh, this, this is the truth of what I did. And that was, I really let myself feel the shame Mm. and I think that there should be an 80-20 principle in terms of how people motivate themselves. So 80% of the time, you should be thinking about the beautiful things in your life, the things you're doing right, um, You know, just really being proud of who you are in this moment, loving yourself for who you are, where you are, regardless of you know any um, failings that you have. But 20% of the time, You should be kicking yourself in the ass and saying, this isn't good enough. This isn't where I want to be. And to really stare nakedly at your inadequacies and to accept them and to realize that the gap between where you are and what you want to accomplish is a gap of skill set. It is 
you not being good enough yet. And so many people are afraid to embrace that. And the key here is it's got to sting. It's got to hurt. That's going to be the motivator. But you cannot, under any circumstance, let it be corrosive. It can't make you less. You can't think that you're worthless. And so it's one of those where I wish the world were as simple as, hey, just tell yourself positive things all the time and the world's going to be okay. And and it's not. And that may be what some people need to do to get to zero. But if you want to get to extraordinary, and, and by that, I mean, some people start at a real deficit. They're really playing with um, depression and things where you just, you're literally playing with your life and you need to take that very seriously. You need to get help. You need to be focused on the positive, the beautiful, all of that and spend, you know, just every waking moment you can to normalize and to feel good again. But once you get there, if you want to really do something extraordinary with your life, you are going to have to figure out the nuance of the human brain, which is that we are rewarded and punished. We move towards pleasure and away from pain mm -hmm. and to not use all of those tools at your disposal is to just admit that, you know, you don't want to go that far. And here's the thing. People have no moral obligation to take advice from someone like me. I am all in in my life. There are things I want to accomplish and I'm willing to bleed to make them happen because mm -hmm. they fulfill me. They make me feel alive. They drive me. They fill me with energy. They're exciting. I'm having a great time. But when I think about how I want to think about myself when I'm by myself, which at the end of the day to me is all that matters. How do you feel about yourself when you're by yourself? I want to be all in and I want to see just how much potential I can wring out of myself. So to really answer your question, you have to know what I went through when I first met the woman who would become my wife. Mm. And I made some really big promises about what I was going to do for us. And, you know, I was going to take us from, I was just dirt poor when we met. And I was going to take us from being poor to being rich and doing something extraordinary with our lives. And she bet on me. And when I went to her father to ask for his blessing to get married, he said no. <laughs> and uh, he just, he's always been very kind to me. I want to make that abundantly clear. But he was also very clear that he didn't want me to marry his daughter. And the one one of the very many questions that he asked me when I told him that I did plan to propose was how did I plan to take care of his daughter? And he said, you know, look, my, he had come from a very small village in an island many people have never even heard of called Cyprus and took himself from that to running one of the world's largest shipping companies in London and just through blood, sweat and tears. And his, his story is truly extraordinary. And so he's looking at me as this, you know, broke kid that uh, hardly has a job. And he just said, you know, my daughter has grown accustomed to a certain lifestyle. And how do you plan to take care of her? And I said, sir, I know what you see right now is a broke kid, but I'm the most ambitious person you've ever met. Mm -hmm. And I do plan to ask your daughter to marry me. And um, with that, you know, agreeing to disagree, uh, I left and I did propose and she said yes. And then I promptly made her poor. <laughs> and I, uh, I really had to sit with that. And mm. I really had to look at my behavior and say, okay, I'm, I have ambition. That actually is true. I wasn't lying when I said that to him, but I didn't have the drive that you were talking about to see it through. Mm. So the, the fact that I had not been more heavy set because I was heavy set as a kid mm -hmm. by the standards in the late 80s, early 90s, right. not by today's standards mm -hmm. in the slightest. So nobody needs to spend even a moment feeling bad for me. Um, but I got lucky in not being obese like the rest of my family because I ate just like they ate. Mm -hmm. So that was just like a bullet dodged. But in terms of how did I avoid that happening to myself, it was really letting the shame of not being able to provide for my wife mm. to wash over me to say, Hey, you've made some big promises here. Are you really going to do something about it? And so part of me knew, yeah, you have big dreams, but what are you doing on a daily basis to actually make those dreams come true? Which is why I start every episode of impact theory by saying, I'm here to introduce you to the people and ideas that will help you actually execute on your dreams mm. because the execution part, that's all that matters. Mm -hmm. And I just knew I didn't have the drive. And so in that moment, the beauty of fantasizing about what I was going to create in the world was not enough. And what I had to do was really let it hurt that my wife had gone from 
you know, being in a very well-to-do circumstance to now being in a tiny ass apartment clipping coupons. Mm. And the reality of that made me start asking, what is drive? What's the difference between drive and ambition? And I just realized that drive is very simply the willingness to act on a day-to-day basis in a way that moves you towards your goals. And ambition is having the goals. So having either of those Mm. in isolation doesn't work and you have to have them both. But to develop my drive, I I had to allow myself to suffer. Oh, I love that you talk about that because I can, looking back over my journey, I feel this, I, I can see the points where I actually took action and why. And it was because I always had that ability to be able to project my pain into the future and say, what, how am I going to feel in the future if this does not change? And it only ever got worse. It never got better. Yeah, (laughs) totally. If I did not take something. So it was like watching that. And especially, I think probably you can completely understand this coming from a family where you actually got to live your future out seeing them. For sure. Yeah. And I did start putting on weight Um, after I was married. I was eating less than I'd ever eaten and I was getting heavier. And I was really angry about that. Mm. And I remember thinking my wife can eat whatever she wants and she doesn't put on fat. Not, not like I do. Mm -hmm. And like, this just isn't fair. And I spent a lot of time in this isn't fair. Mm. And this is where I'm so grateful for my wife. Cause I remember when I first went low carb and I had just brutal headaches And I was like, if I eat a cookie, I will feel so much better. I remember like really being mad at her. And she was like, yes, you will feel better, but it's not going to get you where you want to go. And I thought, you know what? That's absolutely true. Like the cookie will solve my problem, but only Mm -hmm. one of them. And the other problem is just going to get worse. And so at some point you have to say on the other side of some temporary, albeit far longer than I would have liked to, uh, you know, believe on the other side of this process is a better version. And that in that instance, that better version was me burning fat instead of glucose. Mm-hmm. And so making that change was tremendous, but I had to first let go of this notion of it not being fair because it really isn't fair. Like, I mean, there are some people I watch them eat and I think, Oh my God, like no matter what they eat, they stay lean. And if I eat like that, you can hear me getting fatter. It, it's literally crazy. Like I would survive a famine. This, I promise you, I, I can turn in like a breathable air into adipose tissue. It's, it's kind of impressive. Like when you really think about it from an evolutionary standpoint, but from an aesthetic standpoint is absolutely atrocious. Oh my God. My husband and I literally say that all the time. Cause we're always like, what, like what happened that we can't, we don't get to eat like other people. And we just love food too. But from that place is truly, we've turned that story into, can you imagine if it was easy for us? Can you imagine if we just stayed thin? Like, I don't think that we would be doing what we do at all because from that place of wanting to solve this problem came so many other um, businesses and so much, uh, purpose in our lives. And I know that that is true for you. If you didn't have that, if it was just easy, if you were just fit, you probably would not have had this massive passion for what you did with quest. Is that right? Or. Well, that really came. So let me first address things that are hard are going to be the things that develop who you are. So it, everything that's ever been difficult for me has absolutely shaped me into the person that I've become to your point precisely. Now the, the quest thing was really born because by then I already had myself under control Mm -hmm. and that became about, I want to help my mom and my sister. Mm -hmm. And so I had gone through about six and a half years of just chasing money where money was my stated goal. I wanted to get rich. If anybody had asked me like, what's your goal in life? I would have said to get rich. Mm -hmm. And so I was just chasing, chasing, chasing money. And at the end of that six and a half year period, I was just emotionally bankrupt. I was so profoundly unhappy to like the absolute core of my being. And I'm so glad, like I always tell people, I learned about credit with an $800 credit limit. Mm -hmm. So by the time I was at whatever, $1,200 and realized, hey, wait a second, that $800 with all the fees just keeps compounding. It's getting worse. Like what's going on? Thankfully, I didn't learn that with $80,000 in credit card debt, which I know other people have found themselves Mm -hmm. in horrific situations like that. The same is true on 
the money side. So I learned very early that money did not bring me happiness. And so it was like, how am I living the cliche of money can't buy happiness? Like my whole life, I've fantasized about getting rich. And now here all of a sudden, I'm making more money than I've ever made on paper. By the time I was, I don't know, 28, 29, um, I was worth 2 million bucks. I was like, oh my gosh, like this is crazy. On paper, I want to be very clear about the difference between real money and paper money. But on paper, I was a multimillionaire. Mm -hmm. And so I'm like, this, this is miserable. Like, how is this possible? So I went in and we were building a technology company at the time and I quit. I said, look, I cannot do this. I need to do something that makes me feel alive. Here's your equity back. I'm not crossing the finish line. I shouldn't get anything for this, but I just want to do something from a place of passion. I want to create value. Um, I want to feel alive again. And so thankfully my partners felt the same way for three very different reasons, but we decided to found what would ultimately become quest, but it was all predicated on creating value in other people's lives, building community, creating products that we believed into the core of our being. And it was something that we were passionate about because our rallying cry was what would we do and love every day, even if we were failing, mm. because it just became really clear to me that the struggle is guaranteed the success is not. Mm -hmm. So if the struggle is guaranteed and you never know if you're actually going to win, you better love playing. And so that was what gave birth to Quest. And I thought, okay, I can do this every day. I can show up and fight for my mom and my sister. It's so personal. And there's this great quote often attributed to Mother Teresa that says, nobody will act for the many, but people will act for the one. And so to have my mom, my sister, people I can think about, I can picture their faces. Like I could show up and say, all right, I'm going to work 18 hours today because I want to do something extraordinary for them. And that just gave me the energy to keep pushing. Mm. So something that I've loved about learning about your journey is just your ability to pivot. You've had so many chapters where, you know, looking at all the diversity in what you've done from film school to the startup to quest to now what you're doing with impact theory is that ability to quit something good in order to make room for that thing that you said, you know, really lights you up and that you love. So what do you think that is in your mind that makes you say, okay, this is good, but it's not feeling a certain way anymore. And you completely go and switch up what you're doing and take another path. And I really believe that so many people's lives, this, this is what it's supposed to look like, but we get so stuck in the good or so stuck in a pattern. So what makes you different? So that, let's go somewhere really weird and super fun. Oh, um, this is something I've, I've never um, talked about this publicly. This is something that I'm really obsessing on right now in my life. So something that has haunted me for a very long time was a quote I came across that said, genius is a young man's game. Now, that's fine if you're preternaturally smart. If you're the you know, guy that is young and just everybody's clapping for you and oh my gosh, like they're gonna do extraordinary things, but that was not me. And I did not show early signs of doing anything with my life and thusly feel like I have really been a late bloomer. I didn't even know what the word entrepreneur meant until I was like 26, 27. Mm -hmm. So it's like, I'm not a born entrepreneur in any like conceivable way. I did not have lemonade stands as a kid. I did not pull people's flowers and go sell them back to them. Like I just have none of those natural instincts. Mm -hmm. So for me, the thought of having a long timeline, being able to win by just working at it and chipping away, like that resonates. And that has certainly been what my life has been about. But this notion that genius is a young man's game, like really haunted me. And the vast majority of, um, Nobel prizes are given out to people who for work that they did in their twenties and thirties. Mm -hmm. And so I just thought, Oh God, like if the best of my life is going to be my twenties and thirties, I'm really in trouble. Mm -hmm. So first of all, you just have so much more volume of life to live after that. And then second, I just didn't do that much in my twenties and thirties. Mm -hmm. So that, that really bothered me. So that's like seed one. And then on top of that, this notion of renewal, when you look at nature, Nature kills everything. And I just thought, oh God, that really bothers me. And if people follow me, they know I'm obsessed with the notion of living forever. And, and I mean that literally, like not living forever through my art, like actually living forever by not dying. And, 
And it just makes you start thinking about why is it part of the natural cycle of things to have things die? And another quote, um, which this one I'll, I'm really paraphrasing, but um, I forget who said, who said it. It was one of the, the most famous, like Max Planck, I think, um, who said it. And he said that when it comes to truth and science, you don't end up convincing people that the truth is right. The old guard dies and the truth just becomes self-evident. And it's that notion of renewal only comes through people dying off. So now you've got these two bricks. You've got me being haunted by this notion that supposedly my best years are going to be in my 20s and 30s. And that's when I'm going to do my brilliant work. And I did no brilliant work. So now I'm like, whoa, that's really bad news. And then you've got this other thing, which is the renewal of nature, the renewal of intellectual ideas only comes at the expense of death. And I just thought, oh man, I really don't dig that. So how do we renew ourselves? How do we make sure that our own notions, our own beliefs, our own frame of reference, which frame of reference um, is, is to me like the punchline of life. You're always cultivating a frame of reference, a lens, if you will, through which you view the world. And that lens distorts things for sure, mm -hmm. but in hopefully incredibly useful ways. Um, and as we're building that frame of reference, if we don't renew it, if we don't really look at nature's use of death and rebirth, then we never get to avoid that stagnation. And what ends up happening intellectually is people stagnate, it calcifies into dogma, they're living by a set of like, mm -hmm. you know, rules that they never get beyond. And so they get stuck and their life for some massive stretch and going back to that quote, that genius is a young man's game, it's like it probably happens somewhere in your 30s where that's who you are. You self-identify that is me and that becomes you for the end of time. And you spend all of your time arguing for your position rather than desperately listening mm. for that new piece of information that can help that old you die, be reborn as something new with a new vision that is fresh again, that's vibrant again. So every 10 years, almost by accident, if I'm quite honest, um, I've completely reinvented myself. Mm. But because of those two things that I just went through, I'm so eager to reinvent myself. So when the opportunities present themselves, I do not meet them with fear. So when I went in to quit and I was handing back millions of dollars to literally be broke again, I just was not scared. I was moving towards the vision of myself, feeling alive and feeling energized and realizing that money doesn't give me the most intoxicating feeling in the world, which is fulfillment. So, okay, well, if it can't give me the greatest feeling in the world, then I'm not going to bother chasing that. And then realizing just how quickly your ideas can stagnate so that you as a person aren't developing anymore. Um, I wanted to you know, make sure that I'm always pushing myself to reinvent because I really believe, and, and in fact, I want to break everybody out of listening to that whole story and hear the punchline, which is the skill set that you already have has already taken you as far as it's going to. Mm -hmm. So whoever you are right now, that's it. That's as far as you're going to go. Unless today you listen to a podcast, you pick up a book, you try something new, you do something that introduces you to a new idea that you're able to turn into a usable skill. If you do that, if you're constantly in that sense of renewal and getting better and growing every day, then you can really go on and do things that are extraordinary and constantly reinvent. But you, you have to hunger for understanding how you've been wrong. Because if your skill set actually is maximized and it actually has already taken you as far as it's going to, like that's pretty dire. At least for me, I mean, that's how I view my life. So I want to make sure that there are huge opportunities out there for growth and change. But that means I have to be willing to accept that I'm wrong about things right now. Mm. I love that so much. I I literally feel like life offers us the moments where we can let those old parts of us die, but we resist against them so hard. I'm, I'm literally feel like I had a moment like that this last weekend um, where we're constantly being shown different ways or our interest is kind of pulling us into new ways, but we either think that we can't do it or we're afraid of it or I mean, there's so many reasons that I think that we avoid interests or things that can pull us into a new area where the old part of us or our old beliefs or the old way that we are. Um, I'm always noticing that life is catching my interest in something and I'm like, oh, well, I don't have enough time for that. Oh, well, that'll be nice in the future. But really, those are things that you have the opportunity to, to completely 
shift the way your life is moving or what you're doing, like constantly shaking things up and, um, you know, really searching for ways to get new energy into your life is what I'm always looking for. Cause it's, it's so easy for me. I don't know if it's because of how I was raised or my past, but to like settle in, it's very easy for me to be like, Oh, you know, I don't really want to feel anxiety all the time, which is kind of how I feel when I'm really learning and growing. Um, I don't know if you experienced that at all. Like not, I know you talked about not feeling like you were the smartest person a lot, but when I feel like I'm not the smartest person is typically when I know I'm growing in the right rooms, around the right people, doing the right things. And it's the willingness to put myself in those situations. So what do you do and what do you look for in order to make sure that you're constantly putting yourself in those spaces? Well, so the big thing is really building out the, the belief system, your values, like what, what do you want? So when I used to struggle profoundly with being horrified emotionally, it really damaging my self-esteem if I wasn't the smartest person in the room. So that left me putting myself in smaller and smaller rooms with people that knew less and less so that I could consistently be the smartest person in the room. And here's the thing, and, and I really want everyone to hear this, that feels awesome. It feels great. And that's why it's such a profound trap. Like being the smartest person in the room will always feel good to you. And you, you really have to recognize it as a trap. And so finally I realized like, whoa, if I'm always in remedial jobs, because that's the only place where I'm able to be the smartest person in the room, then, you know, like you talk about projecting out into the future, that's, that's not a future that I find enticing. So I'm going to have to start switching what I value in myself. Because the reason that I wanted to be the smartest person in the room was I valued myself for being smart. So it felt good to be in a room where I was smart. It gave me self-esteem. It gave me a sense of identity. And so to get out of that trap, I had to develop uh, what Nassim Taleb calls an anti-fragile personality. And so if you think of something as tough or resilient as you know, something that can really withstand a beating before it breaks, something that's anti-fragile is something the more you attack it, the stronger it gets. Mm. And that is, to me, should be the end goal of anybody that's interested in self-improvement is to switch what you build your self-esteem around from something that's fragile, like being good, right, smart, all of that, all that stuff is fragile because you're always going to meet somebody who's smarter, faster, better, stronger. And if any of your identity is caught up in that, then when you encounter those people, it will hurt. And as we talked about earlier, you move away from pain. And so you'll get in a room that could be really advantageous for your growth. It will hurt and you will move in the opposite direction, which is exactly the wrong idea. You want to get in that place where it's pushing you to develop and you want to lean in and you want to recognize that I'm going to get better here. But the only way that that's going to be pleasurable is if you switch what you build your self-esteem around from building it around being good, right, smart to building it around being the learner. And once I decided that I was going to take pride, not in being smart, didn't matter. I could go into a room and be the dumbest person there. And it wasn't going to impact my self-esteem because I wasn't going to take any pride in being smart, but I was going to take a tremendous amount of pride in being willing to hear an idea that was better than what I'd previously thought and adopt that idea immediately and put it to use in my life. Even though it meant that I had to recognize, oh yeah, for the last you know, 30 years or whatever, I was wrong. Mm-hmm. And now I have the right information and that's awesome. And hey, I'm a total stud for being willing <laughs> to stare at my inadequacies mm-hmm. and say, I need to improve in this. And once I started feeling good about being willing to admit when I was wrong, listening to ideas, sitting at anyone's feet with a willingness to learn, like having the humility not to try to show how much I know, but have the humility to try to learn everything in my life changed. And that, that really was a watershed moment in my life where I decided, okay, I'm going to start building my self-esteem around something different. Mm. That is so powerful. I'm telling you, just telling yourself that story just literally changes everything. It changes what you seek. It changes what you, you know, you look for, who you surround yourself by. And that's a really empowering story. So I was chatting with your wife, whom I'm obsessed with. Um, <laughs> really, you like, and me you both. Know, like she is such a special human being for what she does for other people, for how she shows up just for, she's one of the most generous women that I've ever met. And I love, I love that about her. 
Um, I know that, that you can that's probably... <laughs> awesome to hear. And, and I, I totally agree. That woman is, um, she's, yeah, she's just on another level and I would not be who I am today if it wasn't for her. There's no doubt about that. Uh, I love watching your relationship. It's inspiring. I, my husband and I share a similar relationship. So I think when you come from that place and you spot it, I'm like that is people that I want to be surrounded by because that love is so inspiring. And I know that that also takes, you know, the individual's commitment to themselves and then coming together. So I, there's so much going on there that I think is so beautiful that that's a whole other podcast that I would love to have with you too. Um, but I was chatting with your wife and she was really talking about, cause I wanted to know a little bit more about what you are really obsessing on right now and just what a creative that you are. So I would love to know what does creativity mean to you and what would your life look like without it? Wow. I don't think I've ever had to even think about what creativity is to me, but I will say that it is very much a feeling. It is a sense of creating something, bringing something into existence out of nothing, which is one of the most exhilarating neurochemical states for me. Mm -hmm. So being in that state of being alone in a room um, and creating a world that you get to completely inhabit. And the easiest way to explain that is I remember one time, this is in Southern California in the middle of the summer, in the middle of the day, but I happened to be writing a story that was set in the rain. And in the room, I had the windows blacked out. And so I have no sense of what's you know going on outside. And I'm writing the story and I'm so lost in it that when I stepped out of that room into the living room and saw that it was still bright and sunny outside, it was so disorienting mm. because to me, it, it was raining mm -hmm. and I was in that world. And so bringing that forth is, and I don't know if you've ever um, heard Stephen King talk about writing, but he says, you know, some of it is, is hard work and sitting down and just writing. And he said, the other part is channeling and you, you feel like something is just flowing through you. And it really is like that. And, and like, it is so hard to explain, but you, you feel connected to something really sort of, um, primal and, but not primal in an aggressive way, just like primal base at it mm. at like my absolute essence of I'm communing with some part of me that I don't have another way to access. Mm. And so while I don't think this is actually true from a brain scan perspective, what it feels like is that more regions of my brain are talking to each other. And so when you get that crosstalk and you get these unique, fresh ideas that are as surprising to you as whoever might read what you've written, like that is, I won't say it's the greatest feeling in the world, that I will definitely give that to fulfillment, but man, it's top five for sure. So living in that kind of creative space to me is, is thoroughly enjoyable. But then the reason that I'm pursuing creativity is that I don't think anything has the ability to affect our fellow human beings more profoundly than narrative. Mm -hmm. So I know that you're doing something right now that, um, is, is it new for you? The comic book? Um, have you ever well, done anything whole, like this before? I haven't written one before, okay. but my, my whole life growing up was geared towards getting into film. So mm -hmm. I was a voracious consumer of comic books as a teenager into my college years. Um, and, and one of the first things that my, um, my partner back at Quest and I had bonded over was comics. So, I mean, it's always been like a big part of my life right at the forefront. Lisa and I, the first furry child that we had, his name was Batman. Um, so it's, it's uh, always been something that I've drawn a lot of inspiration from. Um, but the, the creating a comic from scratch is new. Mm. So where did that come from? So you're doing, so you're doing impact theory, which is absolutely amazing. And then comes the comic book. Like what, where is that fitting into your life right now? So impact theory was always envisioned as a full blown studio, meaning that okay. we would do social content like you and I are doing right now. Mm -hmm. That is um, what I call direct to camera, right? So it's me talking direct into a camera or a microphone and just trying to give everything that I have in terms of understanding the mind, how to build a business, like how to improve yourself, all of that. Um, it, it is the intellectual equivalent of telling people who want to make physical changes to eat less and exercise more. It will work and it will work every time, but most people won't do it. So 
what is the equivalent? Like at Quest, our goal was to create food that people could choose based on taste and it happened to be good for them because we knew we can leverage the behavior of people eating things that taste good. That's just like what we're driven to do. So could we make that something that was actually good for people? Mm -hmm. So my thing is I know people are going to watch films, TV shows, going to read comic books, books. They're going to play video games. Like that is a form of entertainment that's narrative based that we're just forever drawn to because humans are meaning making machines. Like we understand our world through story. We understand how to live our lives through stories. Mm. And so wanting to give people essentially modern mythology that would give them the core belief system by which they can build their real life, but given to them in a way that is far more palatable than, you know, the nonfiction direct to camera stuff. Mm-hmm. Okay. So what's your grand vision for what you're doing right now? We are going to build a studio bigger than Disney. Mm. So the reason that we use Disney and look, that's not going to happen in five or 10 years. I am well aware that that is uh, you know, a 75 year kind of journey. It's almost certainly going to be generational. Um, Why you but- have to live forever. It's fine. Exactly. <laughs> now, see, now I feel understood. Yes. That is exactly right. Um, so what we what we want to do to use Disney as the model is because Disney's the only studio that's ever had the discipline to only tell one kind of story. Okay. And in telling that one kind of story, they were able to literally give birth to Americana. Now, mm. people that you know are alive now don't realize that at one point that didn't really exist. That was just a something that Walt Disney manufactured. This whole notion that there's a simpler time, that right always wins, good always triumphs. Um, he just made that up and he was so consistent with it that it, it has shaped our culture. And you can say that, oh, it's, you know, been a saccharine um, thing that he's created, but nonetheless, he created something that has completely permeated our culture. And so what we want to do, if Disney made the most magical place on earth, we want to have the same level of discipline to only tell one kind of story and create the most empowering place on earth. So that's our mission. Hmm. So do you know what that one story is if you had to summarize it? Yeah, it's the classic hero's journey. So it is somebody goes from lost, broken, alone, afraid, going through some sort of crazy intense journey that makes them face their own limitations and their own fears to overcome them, to realize just how capable and powerful they are to return to the village and teach others. I mean, that it's like the classic journey that is so deeply ingrained in us mm-hmm. that even if you never tell somebody a myth, certain people in this society will dream in what sounds like mythology. And that's why you see the, the classic hero's journey myth across every single culture that has ever existed, because that is the journey that all of us humans go on, is we literally are you know, naked, scared, alone, relying on other people. And at some point we have to transition into taking responsibility, caring for ourselves, recognizing our power, which comes from the fact that humans are the ultimate adaptation machine. Like what makes humans so powerful and the reason that we are the apex predator on the planet is not that we're the strongest. We are clearly not the strongest. And and Darwin, who's often misquoted as saying, you know, it's the survival of the fittest, actually didn't say that. What he said was, it's not the strongest of the species that survive, nor the most intelligent, but rather the most adaptive to change. Mm -hmm. And humans are, from just the, the ability to adapt, we're the only species that can flourish in every single nook and cranny of the globe. And so when you realize that our adaptability is the thing that's allowed us to rise above everything else, um, that's when you realize that's the power that as you go through this life, you should be trying to harness. But of course, the adaptive mechanism is only triggered when put under stress. So it's got to be hard. Mm. Okay. So you have this giant vision and this giant goal of being, did you say comparable to Disney or bigger than Disney? I said bigger than Disney. Okay, that's good. So what is scary right now about this undertaking? Like what I, I so I know that you feel it. Like I literally know because I can feel that you feel it, <laughs> that you feel that this is possible. But also there's that point in the vision, especially when people take on huge things like this that I really want to know about is you're dancing in the feeling when you get the vision of, yes, this is happening. And it probably feels like such a sure thing for you, obviously, or you wouldn't go for it. I'm, 
And then there's probably the feeling of when it comes in, like, is this going to happen? So can you tell me a little bit about that dance of the clarity of why and in what you're feeling, but also the dance of maybe the fears and the undertaking that come with it? Yeah, absolutely. There's an Elon Musk quote where he said, if something is important enough um, to do, even if the probable outcome is failure, it's still worth doing. Mm. And I just really believe that. And so the mission of what we're trying to do, which we sum up by saying we want to pull people out of the matrix. And by that, I just mean I want to give them an empowering belief system that allows them to do more than they ever thought was possible. Mm-hmm. So that mission, I think, is so important to get everybody um, and again, will not happen in a single generation and maybe hundred percent penetration is, is just humanly impossible, but you know, aim at something. So mm-hmm. to get everybody thinking in a way that allows them to pursue new skills, to always be learning, that's what we want to do. So that's worth doing. Okay. So now that I know it's worth doing, it's worth putting my fortune at risk. You know, it's worth really going into this and, and trying to make something of it. Then it becomes a question of, is it giving you more energy than it's taking? So for me, the more I work, the harder I go at this, the more energy I get. Mm. So then it's like, okay, well, I've got the fortitude to deal with what you're talking about, which is the near crushing certainty that it's not going to work. Mm. And so you're very kind to say that, you know, um, I must just think that it's a certainty. In fact, I think it is the exact opposite. Mm. It is almost certainly going to fail. And it is only because I believe in my ability to learn and get better that I believe that I'm going to figure it out. Mm. But it is, people need to understand that when you see a high achiever doing something crazy and you think, oh man, I wish like I had whatever mindset they had, Mm. the only mindset that I have, and I'll speak for myself, the only mindset that I have is that I can learn it. Not that I know how to do it. I am not the person I need to be yet to be the next Walt Disney. Okay, well, cool. Then I have to figure that out. I have to figure out what that gap in skill set is and then relentlessly hunt down those skills. But I pride myself on being the learner. So one, I'm not afraid because it's worth doing. So even though it's like the probable outcome is failure, I literally spend almost none of my time thinking about that. And the only time that I think about it is just to remind myself this will not happen by accident. This will not happen if I'm patient. This will not happen if I let things run their natural course. This is only going to happen if I inspire a group of the world's most insanely talented, hungry people to come make this their vision as well and get after it. Mm. And that's it. Like if, if we don't do that, if we don't commit to each other, if we don't get a thousand and one things right, then this will all fail. But to go back to my earlier point, What would you do every day and love even if you were failing? So I don't judge myself on whether or not we actually pull this off. What I judge myself on is, did we sincerely go for it? And did we choose wisely? Like, is this actually something that I care enough about to really pursue like this? Mm. And so on that front, I can already answer the question because we've been doing it now for almost two years and I've literally never been happier in my entire life. Mm. Um, And then... On top of that, like we're making strides. So it's like we're learning. We're not being egotistical. We're getting out of our own way. We're growing by leaps and bounds. So it's like it it is a daunting journey. It is a massive journey. And it is a journey that I hope everybody finds within themselves what their version of this is. And to be completely unbridled by what is probable and to go after what is worth chasing, knowing that you're not yet the person you need to be that's the very journey. Mm-hmm. Mm. I love that so much because so often we can get stuck in thinking it should feel good or I should feel confident or this should I need to know more. And it's, it's never, I mean, I've never experienced that in my life. Yeah. <laughs> that, I think that makes all of us, you know, I don't think anybody has that degree of certainty. And if you do have that degree of certainty, then you're playing well below what you mm. could be playing at. You know, they, they say, a person's reach should exceed their grasp. Mm. So you should be reaching for something that you probably can't get a hold of yet. Okay. So for where you're at right now, it sounds like so many of the pieces that you are desiring to fill in the gaps, to grow to where you need to go, to figure out who you are is requiring 
people and connection and tribe and environment. So how are you seeking out the people, um, at the next level for what you need to really learn what you need to do? Like, I'm sure that those are connections that are completely new for you. So how do you, someone who already has a lot of pull, but in a completely different industry, going into these new industries to meet the people that you need to meet and to connect with the people that you need to connect with. All right. Here's the reality that nobody wants to face at the end of the day. You're either so good. They can't ignore you Mm -hmm. or you're not. Mm -hmm. So the industry for me does not matter. Mm -hmm. My call to the team was no one is going to take it seriously, but if you get me in the room, I will make them believe. Mm. And so that's because I have spent my entire life learning how to articulate my vision, getting other people excited about my vision, and then showing them that I have the wherewithal to either execute on it already or that I will learn how to execute. So that's like, if you look at how I've structured my life, you'll see that I have an interview show and my goal is to get in the room with extraordinary people. And it is not an accident that the first comic book that we're doing is a comic book with Steve Aoki, who was a guest on the show. We had never met before that day, but we connected. And he was, he, this is him saying of his own accord that that was the best interview he'd ever done, which bought me cachet with him, which has allowed me to build a relationship. And, you know, now two years later, we're about to launch a comic book that we did together. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's things like that. And there, there are just many, many stories uh, of people that have come on the show that are, you know, extraordinary household names that I've been able to either build a relationship or begin the process of building a relationship with because I put in the time to be good at what I do. And, you know, we're in a world where we want that equality for everybody. We want people to shine. And I love seeing people shine. But my thing is, dude, you've got to get so good they can't ignore you. So if you are being ignored, by definition, you are not yet so good they can't ignore you. So there is no fair, right? There is no going back to where I used to be, which is, it's not fair that I have to work harder to stay lean, but you'll see that I stay lean because whether it's fair or not, there is a goal that I have and I simply do what it takes to reach my goal. So putting in the time and the energy. So for instance, when I meet somebody in the film industry now where I have virtually no contacts for a normal, like sit down meeting, I prepare like I prepare for an interview where I know that person forwards and backwards. I know what they're into. I know what they're interested in so that we can find real ground for us to connect on. And that's the thing. It's got to be authentic, right? You've got to be real. You've got to be who you are. You can't be a chameleon. Like you've got to come in, know who they are, know where the points of connection are, be yourself, be articulate, share your vision. And I think you, you of all people will understand when you're serving other people, people gravitate towards that. So you put all that together and anybody can go from any industry to another. It really doesn't matter. If you get to the point where all you need is people to get in the room with you and you're so on fire for what you're doing and you believe so much in what you're trying to bring to the world, it'll work. Mm. Okay. So I'm fully prepared to go run through a wall now after talking to you. (laughs) (laughs) For real, this was so enjoyable. I'm so grateful for you. It really, you know, what I wanted what I wanted to get out of this interview with you was just really being able to hear your thought process and how you think. And it really is next level of thinking, but you gave such tangible ways for all of us to start looking at exactly what we're doing right now and how we can move into our own next level. It doesn't have to be your next level right now, but it can be our version of our next level. And I'm so grateful for you and how you show up in the world because you truly do that for everybody, wherever they're at. So thank you for that. Thank you. It's very kind. So Tom, is there a place right now that you are most interested in us in learning about or following? How can we find you? Yeah. At Tom Bilyeu on Instagram and Facebook. Um, Those are my jam. We're also on YouTube. I'm very, very proud of what we do on YouTube um, and all of it's at Tom Bilyeu or in the case of YouTube forward slash Tom Bilyeu. Well, I'm so grateful for you. And I always end on one last question and that is, If you were just taking a brief elevator ride with someone, it's like 30 seconds, or you just had 30 seconds with a total stranger, and they look over at you and they ask you, how can I make myself happy? What would you say? Switch your self-esteem immediately to being the learner. 
If you do that, like everything else will take care of itself. You'll stop beating yourself up for not being good enough, not being pretty enough, not being strong enough, like whatever your hangup is. And it'll move to, I feel good at being willing to accept the things that I'm not good at and learn so I can get to my goals. So good. You guys, if you loved this episode as much as I did, make sure you share it with your friends. And until next time, earn your happy. Bye, everyone. Thank you guys so much for spending this time with me on the Earn Your Happy podcast. I am so glad that you stopped by. If you could take one second to share this episode with someone you think would love it, that would be absolutely amazing and we would be forever grateful. Also, please leave us a review if you feel so moved by going to iTunes and leaving us an honest thought, an honest comment. Tell us what you think. Tell us what you want to hear more of. It would really help us out on our journey to helping thousands and thousands of people. Until then, don't forget to earn your happy. Thanks again, guys. Bye-bye.